0: Scripture reading this morning uh, comes from Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Hear now the word of the Lord, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. This time, many children who wish to go to children's church are dismissed. And let's sing our hymn of preparation. Jesus, I am resting, resting. Father, bless now the uh, preaching of your word, and I pray that uh, these words um, that are spoken today may not be uh, merely the words of man, but may be uh, your words, and that they may go forth uh, with the Holy Spirit uh, and with power, that they might uh, change our hearts and um, change our lives. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Last um, Sunday, I was in the bathroom back here in the men 's room, and um, i don 't know if you 've noticed or not there 's a uh, one of those big pictures of an eagle in the woods flying and uh, below it is the verse isaiah forty thirty one uh, We all know the verse: they that wait upon the Lord shall mount up with wings as eagles, they shall run and not be weary, they shall walk and not faint and uh, I was looking at that, and I had been thinking. I knew I was preaching this Sunday. I'd been trying to think of something to to preach on and a passage to preach on, and and um, I started thinking about that verse. And I, it's one of those verses that we see so often that we sometimes don't think about it. We, um, it's nice to put on pictures and to crochet them into things that we hang on our walls and things like that. But it's just and it's it's inspirational, you know. it kind of you know helps us keep going on and. But what does it really mean to uh, mount up with wings as eagles? What does it really mean to run and and not be weary and to walk and not faint? Um, And furthermore, what does it mean to wait on the Lord? I started thinking about those things. And so I went to Isaiah 40 and um, started reading and and started reading backwards from Isaiah 40. And I found... um, In the chapters immediately prior to that, um, a good example of someone who did wait on the Lord and who did find what it meant to uh, to mount up with wings as eagles and to run and to walk without weariness. Uh, and so I wanted to share that with you this morning. Um, the story is also told in Second Kings, uh, chapters 18 and 19. And if you would stand, please, I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 12 from Second Kings 18. This is the word of the Lord. In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done." He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. In the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hoshea the son of Elah, king of Israel, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. And at the end of three years, he took it. In the sixth year of King of Hezekiah, which was the ninth year of Hosea, Hoshea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken. The king of Assyria carried the Israelites away to Assyria and put them in Halah and on the Habor, the river of Gozan in the cities of the Medes, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant, even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. They neither listened nor obeyed. Thus far the reading of God's word. He may be seated. Israel, of course, uh, had a spotty history, a spotty history of kings. We are at this point in uh, the history of God's people in the time of the divided kingdom. And as we just read, um, Israel, there was Israel and there was Judah, and Israel had been uh, taken captive uh, by the Assyrians and had been taken away. And now we find ourselves um, in the time when Hezekiah was the king of Judah. Um, Hezekiah was a different kind of king than had gone before him in the past. Many uh, kings had preceded him. Many kings had even uh, worshipped God rightly, but they failed to also destroy the idols and high places that were in the land. Uh, Hezekiah um, sort of started a a comprehensive system of restoring the right worship of God to uh, Judah. And now in chapters 18 and 19, Hezekiah finds himself... um, Many of you see in the the heading of your Bible, the very next verse, it says Sennacherib attacks Judah. Now we find uh, Hezekiah um, being attacked himself uh, by Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. I'm going to do a couple of things today. Uh, The first thing I'm going to do is just sort of tell the story of what's going on. There's two chapters. I'm going to be reading um, some pretty good chunks of text and sort of trying to help you lead you along in what's going on with the story. And then I'm going to discuss three things after that that um, I think are principles that we can sort of distill uh, from the life of Hezekiah, things that are um, uh, indicative of a man who waits for the Lord and uh, how God um, responds to those who wait on him. First of all, um, we see uh, Sennacherib attacking or coming up against Judah. Uh, the first thing that Hezekiah does um, in these early verses is that he cuts off the water supply. Um, I believe actually in the, the, the telling of Second Chronicles, it talks about this. Um, He cuts off the water supply. He fortifies the city. He prepares his troops for battle. Uh, He starts making uh, shields and swords and gets them ready for a defensive battle to hold off the Assyrians. And even in the midst of all of this uh, preparation for war, he tells his people this. He says... "...be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him, for there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles." And the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Well, the king of Assyria was clearly uh, bringing his A-game to this particular attack. Um, because we find out several things that uh, Sennacherib threatened Hezekiah with in the following verses in 2 Kings chapter 18. The first thing he threatened him with was sheer numbers. Uh, Sennacherib, not physically speaking to uh, Hezekiah, but actually sent some of his henchmen to go and threaten him, said, Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. So Sennacherib comes to him and says, You're outnumbered. I- I'll give you 2,000 horses if you've got the soldiers for it. Knowing that uh, Judah was a small uh, country. It was even Jerusalem is what he was attacking. So it's a small city. He didn't think he had the numbers to come up against the mighty and powerful king of Assyria. The second thing that he did was um, he accused Hezekiah of not truly worshiping God. Uh, He says in verse 19, "...on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war?" And down in verse 22 he says, "...if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God..." Is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, You shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? See, in Hezekiah's day, many of the people thought that by having high places and altars in various other places other than the temple in Jerusalem, they thought that, well, this is a place where I can go and worship God. This is a place that's convenient for me to go and to worship God. And some of them even made idols. And a lot of times they were idols for other gods, but sometimes they were idols that they thought represented the true God. And they would go and worship these things. And so Sennacherib attacks him with this. He says, look, you've reduced the worship of God in your land. You've actually um, made it harder to worship God. How You're not truly worshiping God. This isn't truly something that um, a good king would do to actually inhibit the worship of God in your own country. Sennacherib went a step further and said, even made the suggestion that he was the one who was truly following God's will. He says in verse 25, Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, Go up against this land and destroy it. So not only are you outnumbered and not only are you not worshiping God rightly, but God's actually on my side. Hezekiah. He then makes an appeal to the people of Jerusalem, telling them that if they would just surrender, that He would give them a good life, that they would still have a comfortable existence there in their city until He would take them away to a country similar to their own. He says, "'Don't let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of My hand.'" Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hand of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine, and each one of his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. Sennacherib did not understand that the point was not ever the search for the good life with the people of God, but it was rather the land that they were on that was kind of the point because it was the symbol of the heavenly land to which they looked. And then he said to Hezekiah, another threat. He says... Has any of the gods? This is verse thirty-three. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim, Hena, and Iva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? So he tells him. That not only are you not worshiping God rightly, and not only are you inhibiting God, uh, God's worship in your own country, but God has never saved anyone from the hand of the king of Assyria. Look at the gods of the other lands. They all fell to me. He told Hezekiah, you don't have what it takes to beat me. You don't have what it takes to come up against this army. We're bigger, we're stronger, we're better. We have God on our side. God told me to do this. We're coming for you. He was trying to destroy the city from the inside out, trying to destroy their morale, destroy their confidence in God, trying to get them to give up. And you know what Hezekiah did? He gave up. He didn't suit up in armor. He didn't further prepare himself for battle. He tore his clothes and cried out to God and sent word to Isaiah for him to intercede. We've all been intimidated by things. I'm intimidated right now. I have the pastor of the church sitting right in front of me. (laughs) Lots of things intimidate us. Jobs, other people that we're afraid of. um, I'm not saying I'm afraid of dentists, but other people that we're afraid of. Getting jobs, uh, health issues and things. But Hezekiah has got us beat by miles. We find out later that there are about 200,000 men camped right outside the city ready to come in And take it over. Hezekiah sent word to Isaiah, saying, This is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God heard all the words of the Rabshakeh, that was uh, Sennacherib's henchman, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land. And I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Now, Sennacherib apparently heard what had gone on. He heard about this little um, messenger to Isaiah. And he heard what Isaiah had said back to him. And he comes back again and says to Hezekiah, don't let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Sennacherib now is at the height of arrogance, at the height of pompousness, believing that he actually has more power than god himself behold you have heard what kings of assyria have done to all lands devoting them to destruction and shall you be delivered and once again he appeals to the gods of the nation saying they never delivered anyone hezekiah's confidence is now not shattered but rather he knows that he must bring this before god And he takes this letter that he had received from Sennacherib that had said all these things, and he spreads it out before the Lord in chapter 19, verse 15. Here's the prayer he prays. O Lord, the God of Israel who is enthroned above the cherubim, You are the God, You alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us, please, from His hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that You, O Lord, our God alone. After this prayer is prayed, Isaiah hears the Word of God and brings it to Hezekiah. This is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning the king of Sennacherib. Verse 21, She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. "'Whom have you mocked and reviled? "'Against whom have you raised your voice "'and lifted your eyes to the heights? "'Against the Holy One of Israel.'" By your messengers you have mocked the Lord, and you have said, With my many chariots I have gone up to the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon. I felled its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses. I entered its farthest lodging place, its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank foreign waters, and I dried up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. And God says this, Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass, that you should turn fortified cities into heaps of ruins. While their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded, and have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it is grown. But I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in, and you're raging against me. Because you have raged against me and your complacency has come into my ears, I will put a hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. You parents out there understand a passage like this, especially if your kids have ever been bullied in school, because you know that that bully, when they mess with your kid, they're not just messing with your kid, they're messing with you. And this is what God is saying here. He's saying, you're not, just, you're not just coming up against my people. You're not just coming against some random nation. You're coming against my people, the people of God. And when you mess with my people, you mess with me and you have me to answer to. And he tells Sennacherib, you're just a horse to me. I could stick my bit in your mouth and a hook in your nose and turn you right back around where you came from. You're nothing but a horse. And then the Lord finishes by saying, He shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a sie- a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that He came, by the same He shall return. And He shall not come into this city, declares the Lord for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And then here's what happened. And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch his god, Adrammelech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. Sennacherib, in all his arrogance, railed against Israel, not realizing that he was really railing against the living God. And Hezekiah, having prepared the way by being a good king who um, it re-established worship in that nation um, was um, made to be victorious even though He didn't lift a finger against His enemy. So what were the things that Hezekiah did right? And I say these things not so that you will be like Hezekiah, but rather to show you an example of someone who Did worship God rightly and to show you um, how God responds to that. The first thing, the first point is that he did worship God rightly. Um, He knew who God was and he saw the coming king of Israel who would ultimately replace him. The second thing is that he worshiped him boldly, he knew that that king was also with him. And the third thing is that he drew others to worship God. He wanted others to know the king. How did Hezekiah worship God rightly? Well, he began by tearing down the idols and the high places. As I said before, many people in Israel thought that by uh, putting up these um, altars and high places that they were actually worshiping God. But God had made very specific regulations as to how he was to be worshiped. He had said, no, you will worship me in my temple in Jerusalem and nowhere else. That's where you're going to offer sacrifices. And it's interesting today uh, to think about, uh, we seem to be very keen on um, sort of idols of the heart. We talk a lot about that, you know, how we prize our possessions or we prize our relationships or we prize... um, you know, particular job or station in life or, or what have you, above all other things, and those things become our idols. One of the forms of idolatry that I think um, gets often overlooked is one that really looks a lot more like the kind that there that existed in Hezekiah's day. And that is the use of, quite frankly, images of God and of Jesus Christ. Hezekiah understood that God was to be worshipped in a specific way and in a specific time, in a specific place, and that there was no image that could ever do justice to God's image. He decides. God decides when and where He is to be worshipped, and that place is in Scripture and in the sacraments. And some say well you know aren 't they a good teaching aid though couldn 't we have uh, you know dramatic reenactments of jesus couldn 't we have um, wouldn 't it be good to uh, use books with pictures of Jesus to um, teach people so they could understand more fully uh, exactly what it was like for Jesus and we could really sort of grab hold of his uh, life and his death and his ministry uh, The Heidelberg catechism um, written." hundreds of years ago, asked this very question. It said, may not pictures be tolerated in churches as books for the people? In other words, not everybody can read. So why can't we have pictures so that people can um, understand the story? And the catechism goes on to say, no, for we should not be wiser than God who will not have his people taught by dumb idols, but by the lively preaching of his word. Uh, Habakkuk 2.18 is a good supporting verse for this. It says, What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image of teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, to a silent stone, arise! Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all earth keep silence before him. The Heidelberg Catechism was written during the time of the Reformation, as many of you know. Um, I spoke to a person uh, when I was in, um, overseas for school who was an art history major, and I told her that I was studying, uh, I was in the program for Reformation Studies. And uh, she looked at me and she said, Oh, I hated that period. And I said, why? Well, what's wrong with the Reformation? I kind of like it. And uh, she, said, uh, she said, because there's this huge gap of art in the Reformation. Because so much of it was destroyed when the Reformation came around because they wouldn't tolerate images of saints and of Jesus and of God in their churches. They, they destroyed them all. Um, and she was just very like, like it had just happened yesterday, um, visibly upset by this gap that there was because of the Reformation. Um, sadly, today it's really not that way. I mean, even in our Reformed churches, it seems all too acceptable to um, use pictures of Christ and um, even to, to go to the various movies that are out that that portray Jesus. But Jesus can't be fully represented by art. Jesus was both God and man. How do we capture Jesus' divinity in a picture? How do we capture His divinity in a movie? We can't do it. We can only portray Him as a man. And if we're only portraying Him as a man, then we're really not portraying the true Jesus Christ. The biggest reason, I think, however, is that God is the one who gets to reveal Jesus to us. He is the only revealer of Jesus Christ, and He's revealed Him to us in His Word. Um, One analogy, and this is just an analogy. um, Several years ago, I owned a, a bright yellow 1974 Volkswagen Beetle convertible. And uh, this was a cool car. I loved this car. Okay, um, the floorboards were rusting out. The battery kind of hung down while I drove along, you know, um, out of the floor of it. Um, the seats were all torn and ripped up. And so I set about to put some work into this thing. And i I put all kind I put new interior in it. I had the engine rebuilt. I put all kinds of different new parts on it, and got the interior repainted. And I mean, it was a sweet looking car. And this whole time, I was a part of a, a forum online. It was a, um, for Volkswagen enthusiasts. And all these people loved Volkswagens. I mean, they were fanatic about Volkswagens. Um, they had multiple Volkswagens, many of them just strewn across their lawns as Volkswagens waiting to be rebuilt. Uh, these people loved Volkswagens, and they would use the Volkswagen logo within the, in the website, you know, in various places. Volkswagen of North America caught wind of this. And sent the the, um, the webmasters or whoever ran the forum a cease and desist letter and said, you can't use our logo. That's not up to you to use. We, you don't just get to take our logo and put it anywhere you want. It could be juxtaposed to something that we don't approve of. It could be um, it's confusing to the consumer because they don't understand that this isn't really affiliated with Volkswagen in North America. Of course, the whole time they're watching their bottom line, they want to be able to have complete control over it. That they said we're the ones that get to decide where the Volkswagen logo is used even the shape of it there was another case where somebody was selling pictures of Volkswagens and Volkswagen um, sent them a letter saying that they needed to turn over their profits from this because even the image of a Volkswagen is uh, trademarked information and they get to decide where that the shape of that Volkswagen is uh, portrayed now I'm not in any way trying to reduce Jesus Christ to the um, shape of a Volkswagen or anything like that. But it's a good analogy, I think, because God is the one who gets to decide where, when and where Jesus is revealed. Uh, it is not up to us to say, well, I think this is a good place or that's a good place. God revealed Jesus to us in the flesh in a specific time in history, and He will reveal Him to us again. Had God wanted us to see Him and know what He looked like, I'm sure He would have had one of the authors of the Gospels or the Epistles who actually spent time with Him to draw us a picture and to stick it in there with the Gospels and pass it down throughout the generations. But He did not do that. In fact, in Second Peter, um, Peter talks about this. Let me read this briefly. Um, if I can find Second Peter. I always go right past it. There it is. He says... um, 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts." Peter says we were there with Him. We saw the guy. We hung out with Him. We saw all the amazing things that He did. But you have a more sure Word, the prophetic Word that comes from God that tells us, that proclaims Christ. God cannot be worshipped rightly if we are not worshipping the true God, if we are worshipping mere images. And any time we see an image Anytime we think of Jesus, anytime we are led to think of God, there should be, even in some small part, there should be worship made to Him. And if that comes about because of something we see in a movie or in a picture, we need to consider whether or not we are worshiping the real Jesus or whether we are worshiping some uh, noble-looking white guy with flowing locks and uh, big, strong muscles. The second thing that hezekiah did was he worshipped god boldly he knew that the king was with him he wasn't afraid to worship god in front of his own people in fact uh, second chronicles chapter 30 tells us that um, hezekiah met with much resistance from people when he uh, did tear down the the high places a lot of people laughed at him and said that's ridiculous why are you why are you doing this it's so hard to glorify God in front of our friends sometimes, even our Christian friends. It's, sometimes it feels weird to talk about God. We feel uncomfortable by it somehow. In fact, when somebody does say something about God, you know, says has an answer to prayer, something that says, oh, that was totally God, you know, and it, we think it's oh, that's kind of a little thing. What's the, you know, that wasn't really God. That was just, you know, you got a parking space. So what? But we, we tend to think of these little things as not being significant enough uh, for God's watchful eye. and We tend to be embarrassed to talk to other people about them. But he wasn't afraid to worship God in front of his own people. And he wasn't afraid to worship, his, worship God in front of those who hated God. He stood in defiance against the enemies of God. But it was a humble defiance. He didn't defy them to their faces, but he defied them before the face of God. He was public in his worship of God. And he let the arguments that came up, um, when Sennacherib was was um, giving all these arguments for, for why he was a better uh, warrior and why he had more of a chance of defeating Hezekiah, He um, uh, Hezekiah instructed his men, he said, don't answer him. Don't say anything back to him. Hezekiah didn 't descend to the part of sort of rational arguments for well, no, we do have quite a few soldiers. We do have a pretty good army set up here no he let the he let the debate be between God and the devil. He let the debate be between those uh, who it was actually between it didn 't uh, let it descend to a merely uh, rational level. He brought God into his public affairs. And lastly, he drew others to worship God. He wanted others to know the king. His was not a private faith. He wasn't a king who said, well, I'm just going to worship God in, in my own way and then sort of let everything else be as it may. But he knew that as a king that he was responsible to bring all those in his kingdom into a right relationship with God. He knew that they should be worshiping rightly and they should be worshiping boldly. God Himself is about the business of gathering worshipers to Himself. And we must be about that business as well. Anytime we are drawing people, we must be drawing them to the living God, not to our own personalities, but drawing them to a right relationship with the living God. If we show people that there is more to life than Uh, merely good character or um, exciting things or uh, an outgoing temperament, and we show them the greatness of God and His goodness in sending His Son to die for us, then we truly have something to offer. And God blesses those efforts because they're efforts that aren't our efforts. They are things that rely completely on Him for strength. And when we do this, when we build our hope on Jesus, when we rest in Him, when we hope in Him, when we wait on Him, then and only then do we mount up with wings as eagles. Then and only then do we see that it's not uh, necessarily us that mounts up with wings as eagles, but it's that God uh, brings that about in our lives and does these things uh, without our even lifting a finger, just as Hezekiah um, did not have to fight his own battle, but God fought that battle for him. Um, that verse in Isaiah forty thirty one, it actually uh, it says we will renew our strength. The, the word there actually means that we will change strength. That it won't be just that our strength becomes stronger, but it will be that our strength becomes different and comes from a different source and comes from the living God and not from our own humanity. Amen.